remember the moment when I realized that Jesus was all I needed, that he was the sufficient one, and that in living and in dying, give me Jesus. You know, when I go into the next life, I'm looking for him. I told somebody, got all my eggs in one basket. What basket is that? Jesus. He's the one I'm counting on, nothing else. I'm sure not going to parade my morality when I get in front of God. Are you? Going to volunteer? Well, let's look at my attitudes, God. We just want to be under the blood, amen? Sanctified, justified, and redeemed through the blood of Christ and all he's done. I'm in Genesis 29 today. Somebody might say, why are you talking so much about family in this series from the book of Genesis? Well, it just happens that there's a lot of this book that's about growing up as boys, getting married, going on journeys, having children, and dying. And there are lessons to learn in every account. And these ancient accounts of the life of the patriarchs, there's lots to learn. So I want you to perk up your ears, open up your heart to the Holy Spirit as God seeks to bring a word to you. Maybe the battle that you're fighting is the battle on the family front. Or maybe you know somebody that is. And it's really about the marriage and the family for you. Well, this is going to be right where you need to be. And if there are qualities of character that God's seeking to produce out of the difficulties in your life, that's right here too. We left Jacob in the glow of Bethel. God visited him and reiterated the covenant promise. Jacob woke up and said, the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. How awesome is this place? This is the very house of God and the gate of heaven. So he named it Bethel, which is house of God. He makes his journey on up to Padamaran and He arrives at a well there in the first part of chapter 29. We're sitting down with Jacob now. Jacob, what happened there? Well, Rachel came with her flocks to the well. And he found out who she was. Rolled the stone away from the well so they could water the sheep. Verse 10 of chapter 29. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. That's where his parents had sent him, you remember? Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. This Jacob is is an emotional man. Right now is a moment of emotion for him. He had told Rachel he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father, like a young girl would. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, 
He hurried to meet him. He embraced him, kissed him, and brought him to his house. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. I don't know what that means. All right? I know she had weak eyes. But Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. I think I know what that means. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. This is verse 31. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. When you think about it, it's a very sad story about Leah. Leah's life seems tragic to us. The Bible says that Jacob fell in love with Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And the word love is that common word in the Hebrew to desire. It's used for sexual love as well as God's love. Anything that you desire, that's the word that is used. And Jacob desired Rachel. 
from the moment he saw her at the well. He fell in love with her. The Bible doesn't have to describe Jacob loving Rachel, yet it does. It also says that his dad, Isaac, loved Rebekah. In fact, the scripture says that when Isaac laid his eyes on Rebekah, whom he had never seen before, he took her into his tent and married her, and he loved her. The Bible never describes Jacob as loving Leah. Even in his old age, when Jacob talks to their newly discovered son, Joseph, whom they thought was dead. Jacob describes his heartache at losing Rachel, Joseph's mother, on a trip they made near Bethlehem. Jacob, however, is faithful to the covenant he entered into with Leah, even though he was deceived. They live a long life together, have many children together, and in the end, in that tomb were Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah are buried. In the cave of Machpelah, there also are buried Jacob and Leah, his first wife. One of the things I learned from the patriarchs is this. Love the spouse you have. It's a simple instruction. I hope having visited this story that you will leave the room loving more the spouse you have. Say, why should I love the spouse I have? First of all, you are commanded to husbands, love your wives. Hard to misunderstand that, isn't it? Say, well, how much am I commanded to love her? Love her like Christ loved the church. Laid his life down for her. That's how you love her. You say, well, I don't know if I, I feel that kind of love for my wife or my husband. I'm not sure I feel that kind of love. Say, the command is not talking about what you feel. The command is talking about you loving your spouse. Sometimes that feels pretty good. Sometimes that feels pretty hard. All the time, it's consistently what God requires of you. Singles. Some of you are contemplating marriage. Maybe you're dating somebody you hope to marry. You're engaged. What is my responsibility? Should I come into the church and say I do? 
love the spouse you have. That's your responsibility. It's the command. It's also more than a command. It's a covenant into which you enter. Jacob is not romantically attracted to Leah. And yet these two people who started so rocky will live a long life together and be buried together and have many children together and be recorded in history history together. They gave birth to Judah, who is in the line of the Messiah. That's Leah's fourth son. You have a covenant. Loving the spouse you have is about command and covenant. Some of us have the covenant tested. We don't know if we want to keep the promise. Whether we keep the promise we made or not is often about our integrity, our honesty, our determination. It's about qualities of character. You're in a covenant relationship right now. You promise together. Loving the spouse you have is about command and covenant. And brothers and sisters, we can't comprehend this culture that I've just read about, okay? We don't get it. I read through here and I think, what were these people thinking? I mean, he has children with Billa and Zilpah and Rachel and Leah out. He keep them straight. I read this, it's so foreign to me, I don't understand it. But I do understand. Command and covenant. Understand that. Love the spouse you have, sister, brother. Love them at God's command. Love them because you were in covenant with them. You say, well, I want to make another promise here. You have a prior covenant. Well, I want to live this alternative life. Hey, you've got a covenant into which you entered. You respect the covenant, honor the covenant, keep the covenant. It will grow you. It will shape you. It will help you. It will bless you if you will keep and maintain the covenant. Your faithfulness to the covenant is patterned after God's faithfulness to you who initiated a covenant with you through Jesus, though he didn't have to. He entered into covenant with you. He said, you will be my child. I will be your father through what Jesus did on the cross. And so we consent to the covenant. We say, I do to the Christ who comes to us and invites us to trust him as Savior. And God's faithfulness is amazing. His faithfulness is better than life. His faithfulness lasts for thousands of generations. His faithfulness is astonishing. And the more faithful we are, the more we are like the God who has called us in the covenant. Love the spouse you have and live the life you have. Nobody in the three main characters in the story is going to get what they expected. You've got expectations. Bless you. 
Some of you say, I have high expectations. That's great. You build your dreams out of your expectations. You have an ideal picture of your future, of the person you will marry and the life you will live together and the children you will have. You have great expectations. That's important. We cherish our expectations. They drive us to succeed sometimes. They're important motivators in our lives. These dreams, these expectations that we have. And then you have realities that often conflict with your expectations. Jacob went to bed thinking it was Rachel. He woke up, behold, it was Leah. What a surprise! An astonishment! Every man comes to this altar marrying a princess. With high expectations that this is Rachel, beautiful Rachel. And sometimes in the morning, it is bad bat breath and frumpy Leah. All right? Every man thinks he's marrying Rachel. And to some degree or other, every man wakes up with Leah. Yeah. Sometimes in our dating life and courting life, in fact, often, love is blind. We minimize the flaws and magnify the virtues of the person we are going to marry. Somebody said every bride comes down focused on the aisle, focused on the altar, focused on the groom. Aisle, altar, hymn. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I know he's not perfect, but I'll alter him. Okay? I'll alter him. He's going to get in line. Oh, uh, what great potential this man has. We all, we all do the same thing in relationships even friendships and business relationships. Sometimes we're just like Paul writing to the church at Corinth saying, I want to come to you, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I show up, this relationship we've had sort of by email and in cyberspace, that when I show up, I'm not going to be who you think I should be. And you're not going to be who I hope you are. And there's going to be mutual disappointment. Mutual disappointment. That's what happened with Jacob and Leah. This is not the woman I married. 
this man I married doesn't love me. I don't know what Leah had in her mind about the life she would live with her man. I know she wanted romantic love. She wanted to be the center of his passion. She wanted him to desire her. And this expectation of this romantic love never really came to pass for Leah. Jacob always preferred Rachel. Later on, there's a story where Leah purchases a night with her own husband from her sister and goes to her husband and says, I have bought you with my son's mandrakes. You've got to sleep with me tonight. Her prayer changes. At first, when she bears the first children, she's thinking, maybe my husband will love me now. In later years, she names them, maybe my husband will honor me now. You know what holds together. Romantic love is important, all right? It really is. But what holds together a marriage over the course of decades is practical, down-to-earth, caring for one another like God commands. The love that God commands is not a passion. It is a lifestyle with a purpose. It's God's love flowing through you. That's what keeps the marriage going and healthy. And the spark of romance is important. And it is not the glue of a long life together. That's the selfless love that you've got to check on every day in your own behavior and attitude. That's the laying down of your life for the other. That's the setting aside of your dreams for the sake of the other. That's humility, forgiveness, mercy, patience, gentleness, every single day. Where do you practice your Christianity first? Where does your patience shine? Where are you most careful with your words, with your spouse? That's where you practice it first. And brother, sister, if I come into your home and you're not Christian together, I suspect your Christianity everywhere else in your life. We're not gentle and caring and humble and faithful and merciful and forgiving in that basic relationship God gives, then everything else looks like a facade. This is the place you practice first, the fundamentals of your faith. And these are the things that make a marriage beautiful. You know, the Bible never says that Jacob loved Leah. But the Bible does show how through all those years he was faithful to her.
And I think the distinguishing characteristic was, though he did not have the passion, he cared for his wife, Leah, all their life long through. Rachel, you say, she has the ideal. Rachel's loved passionately by her husband. That's what I want. I want somebody to love me like Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel's the life I want, is it? You think Rachel got all her expectations. Life turned out just right for her. No, she couldn't have children. Leah had a son, and another son, and another son, and another son. Bilhah had a son, and another son. Zilpah had a son and another son, and Rachel had two more. Uh, Leah had two more, and Rachel has yet to have a child. She says at one point, Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And Jacob is angry with her. This perfect couple, romantically entwined from the very first, fallen in love, so passionate together. Jacob's angry with her, and Rachel's at him saying, give me a son or I'll die. Do you not think behind those doors in that tent with Rachel and Jacob there were moments of tension and disappointment and anger and shouting? Where? Because life wouldn't turn out like they wanted it to. Rachel's expectations weren't happening. She couldn't have a baby. What are you expecting out of life? You know, 41% of the marriages fail in these United States. Second marriages are failing by 60%, and third marriages are failing by 73%. Your fastest, quickest, smartest, and most faithful path to love is to love the spouse you have and live the life you have and resist the jealousy you have. You say, how did the preacher know that about me? It's in the Ten Commandments for a reason. Thou shalt not covet. Is there because we are coveters. We want what we don't have and the other side of the fence, the grass always looks greener to us. So the scripture says, thou shalt not covet. Your neighbor's ox nor his donkey nor his wife, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. It is the common human tendency to want what you think you don't have. And envy and jealousy of the sister, the brother, the friend, who seems to have it all. This eats us up day after day and week after week. 
And the reason that coveting is in the Ten Commandments is it leads to so other, so many other difficulties, hardships and sins in a person's life who cherishes and nurtures the envy that springs within. If I only had that other life, the injustice of it, the deck you were dealt when others did it so easy and so well. The scripture indicates that Leah was jealous of Rachel for the relationship she had with her husband. A very common jealousy. And Rachel is jealous of Leah. Why? Because Leah has the children and the little ones are all around her feet everywhere she goes. And, and Rachel can't see him without saying, Oh, I wish I had that! Resist the jealousies you have. They are not good for you. They poison the relationship you have now. It turns you bitter on the inside. It makes you harder and harder to live with because you don't like the life you have and you resist the command and the covenant, the qualities of spirit that God is trying to produce in you, patience, endurance, gentleness, goodness, faith, and self-control, all of these things are challenged by jealousy and envy and coveting. There's no good to come from comparing your life with another what help is that? To compare how life turned out for you with how it turned out with somebody else? The comparing that we do with children, it ends up so often being destructive. Live the life you have, brother. Love the spouse you have. Resist the jealousy you have. It's up to no good in your life. And work for the family you have. It's one thing about Jacob I really like. This man is not afraid of work. Don't you agree? Seven years for Rachel. Seven more years for Rachel. He doesn't really get started accumulating any wealth till it's been 14 years. It's like he had to pay off all his student loans, you know. He couldn't accumulate anything for 14 years. And then finally they renegotiated after 14 years. He's got these wives, he's got some kids. Okay, now, we're going to let you start having wealth on your own. A man is not afraid to work. That's a gift now. The scripture says if a man doesn't provide for his house, he's worse than an infidel. Paul finally says to all the people that are bleeding, feed me, feed me. He says, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. What? He shouldn't eat. If he has the opportunity to work, and he doesn't, he shouldn't eat. 
You know, the Bible teaches a work ethic that far exceeds anything about doing right by your boss or doing right by your company. Although those are good virtues, all right? What the Bible teaches about work is this. You get up in the morning, you show up at work at 7 o'clock, you clock in, you're working for Jesus, sister. That's who you're working for. Oh, you've got a company, you've got a boss, you're working for Jesus. Do your work as unto the Lord and not unto men. Do your work as unto the Lord. Work for the family you have as men and women. Some of the hardest work you'll do. Listen to me, men. Some of the hardest work you'll do is the work of relationships. Some of us guys, we are task-oriented. We can get into the job. We show up. We do it well. We do it fine. But spending time in the relationship and growing our marriage, it's harder for us. And when something's broken, we just want to run in there with our crescent wrench and our screwdriver. Just fix it, you know? What's wrong, wife? Tell me what it is. I got my toolkit. We'll fix it right now. And the wife's not going to happen like that. This is long work. It is hard work. It is the work of loving each other, demonstrating our faithfulness, sometimes renewing our trust and proving we are trustworthy. And that is long, hard work. And some of the things about our relationships take years. People do change, you know. But it's gradual. And particularly when you're talking about personality and the way you look at life and the way you handle things. I hope after years of marriage, you will look at one another and say, we have helped each other. It's been rough sometimes, but we've sort of knocked off the bumps and the rough edges. And we've blessed one another and we've grown together and we're more like Jesus today than we were 20 years ago when we said, I do. Because in the furnace and fire of the relationships of life, God purifies, tests, and produces things he cannot produce when all is fine and dandy. When the trials and the troubles come, and often they come to us in the family, God produces his great work in us, makes changes he can make no other way as he changes us moment by moment, glory by glory, into the image of his Son, Child, God's working on you through your parents, through your brothers and sisters. Single, God's working on you through your friends, your relationships, your family. Husbands, hear it. God's working on you through that spouse, 
through the things that test you most sometimes. Wives, God's working on you too. Work for the family you have. Say, you know, preacher, I wish I could tell you about my family. I don't know if you'd say these things if I knew your family, if you knew my family. And I don't know everybody's story in the room, okay? I don't know the tragedies and difficulties you deal with. But let me tell you this. Families thrive only in an atmosphere of forgiveness and grace and mercy, patience, humility, and a servant heart. And all the rules we could invent for how we relate together will not measure up even to this one. Love one another as I have loved you. Let's bow together. And as we have our response today, you are invited and encouraged to come and pray here at the front, maybe for somebody you know that is struggling in their home or their family. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I think the greatest impact you can have under relationships of your life is to receive Christ and His forgiveness of sin, to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. So changes everything when Christ comes into your life, changes who you are from the inside out. You've never trusted Christ to save you. This would be a great morning to say, I want Christ in my life. I want to follow Him. I believe He died on the cross for my sin, and I, I want to be His child. Lord, I pray today for men and women in the room who need a fresh start, a new beginning. Lord, so much has gone before, so much trouble and heartache. God, if you could give a new beginning this morning to sisters and brothers in the room, Beginnings in their marriage and their families. A new start somehow, Lord, on a new path. God, I pray that your forgiveness would flow today. That those who know they have hurt another will call out for your forgiveness today. Asking for forgiveness from the one who has been injured and receiving forgiveness from you. God, that forgiving might bring a new beginning. I pray for grace today for those who struggle under heavy burdens, great difficulties, crushing soul and spirit. God, that you would give your strength by your Holy Spirit to those who need it most. Lord, thank you that your strength is available to all, no matter how dark the time, how deep the hole your grace is greater than all our sin. Thank you, Lord. God, I pray for patience, for a new birth of gentleness, humility, one toward another. God, that these virtues would temper our words and change how we talk at one another and look at each other. 
Lord, that you would lace the virtues of Christ into the relationships of life. God, I pray for those who at crisis time, that you would intervene by your Holy Spirit. And God, that you would come and bring a new day of love and healing and faithfulness. Lord, we're trusting you. You're the only one we can turn to. You are the one, the healer. You reconciled us unto God. You give us reconciliation unto one another. Lord, perform your good work. We pray in Jesus' name.